Hello everyone and welcome to this episode of Wings podcast. This is your host Melinda Agnihotri. On today's show we will meet Yashodhan Gharath. Yash grew up in Dombivali, India, spending a lot of time at his family village along the Konkan coast, enjoying the outdoors whenever he could. His love for nature and hobbies like bird watching led him to a bachelor's in environmental science and sustainability from Cornell University US and later to a masters in development from the Institute of Development Studies in the UK these degrees and his work experience in the last few years have led him into a life of international development work specifically focused on agriculture yash currently lives and works as a country director in malawi southern africa for a social enterprise called one acre fund Welcome, Yash, to this episode of Wings Podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. It's a great pleasure. Yash, I was looking up at the website of One Acre Fund, specifically, you know, what is this organization? What does it do? Where is it based? But more importantly, what is its vision? And I came across a beautiful vision statement of your organization. And it says... we envision a future in which every farm family has the knowledge and means to achieve big harvests support healthy families and cultivate rich soil mm-hmm. why don't we begin our conversation on this vision statement of the organization that you work at and how mm-hmm. it manifests in the everyday work that you do as a country director uh in this uh, rich and beautiful country called malawi yeah sure um i think you're absolutely right to focus on that vision statement i've always said that um there might be many companies many organizations where the values and the vision are often on the walls but not in the minds and hearts of people as they do their everyday work uh whereas with one acre fund i've always felt the difference that we actually live our values they're not just in nice posters or in our email signatures but they're actually something that we use as guiding principles to make decisions um or to drive operations um to serve our clients our our farmers um so i do feel very proud of that um and i think you're right that it is a beautiful vision statement so the the whole idea comes from um the 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 experience of one of our founders who is now the ceo in in kenya about 15 years ago <clears throat> what he realizes is that a lot of um a lot of poverty in sub-saharan africa as also in india or many other places is concentrated in rural areas where most of most of the population there are farming they're farmers um and the tools or technology to make uh farmers more food secure and more prosperous already exist uh in india we experienced it as the green revolution um but in many parts other parts of the world that technology and that know-how has not yet become accessible or affordable um and so the whole idea was let's take these tools and technology it might be as simple as you know better quality seed uh microdosing or proper application of fertilizer um let's take those tools let's provide them um to to farmers uh, on loan so that it becomes affordable and then let's deliver it up as close to their doorstep as possible so that it becomes accessible um and that was the that was the whole idea behind this so i mean you know it's it's not necessarily rocket science in terms of the idea itself but it's more the implementation and how we actually do it how we operationalize it that's kind of become the major innovation for for one acre fund um and so this vision kind of attempts to capture what we want to see is the overall impact and the outcome of that of that work so we want to make sure that um as farmers access better inputs they have big harvests um so they are they become more food secure um we want to make sure that they're taking care of one of their biggest assets for the future which is the soil that they farm on um and and we want to make sure that it it's not just about prosperity or income but also about health nutrition and sort of overall quality of life and that's where the healthy families aspect comes in um so that's where the vision comes from and that's sort of the grounding um experience that that vision is built on you know uh i was fortunate uh, to have begun my work life uh, yash 
many years back in a company called Wipro in India, when uh, in the mid 80s, and I spent my first uh, five or six, yeah, little over five years of my work life with this company. And I had the firsthand uh, experience of how the organization evolved in its early days when I was also starting my work life. And uh, I think I consider myself extremely fortunate to have had this experience uh, where I see myself and my organization all both taking baby steps and evolving. And what I also gather from you, Yash, is this also seems to have happened with you with One Acre Fund that over the last uh, six, seven years that you have been associated with them, you've kind of evolved and played multiple roles uh, in mm-hmm. which also contributed to your growth and the organization's growth, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, I can I, I can say a little bit about that. So um, I've been associated with Money Fund for uh, eight years now, so since November 2014. Um, and when I joined, the organization was seven years old. Um, and we were just starting out in, you know, a handful of countries at that point. And now we are in nine countries. Uh, we have over 10,000 employees. Uh, we are serving over one point something million farmers all across these nine countries that we work in. Um, and yeah, so I think I think having it is a privilege to have been part of an organization as it sort of matures from the early days of. Uh, a startup with vision and passion, but maybe not as much structure or systems. And now to see it become this more mature, large organization um, that's trying to kind of maintain the need for controls and systems with the kind of uh, passion and entrepreneurial spirit with which it started. Um, so that's a really interesting experience. I think it's it's a very formative experience. And I think you're right that I have also personally grown within that time a lot. Um, so I started... Uh, with One Acre Fund as a new country scout, which was a position um, designed to find new markets uh, for for our program to grow in. And I I worked as a new country scout uh, supporting one of our pilots in Uganda for one year. Um, And then I moved to Malawi um, to to start working on more R&D, like innovations. Um, And then since then have grown within the organization. So it's it's been interesting, even personally, like, but I was a new country scout and, you know, we had a team of maybe 20 people in Uganda um, and we were doing everything, you know, like paying office rent personally to uh, <laughs> sorting out the water tap when the water tap stopped working in the office or, you know, going to the printer to print out trainings uh, to now having a team of over 400 people. Um, that and like so many of these things are automated or there are roles for everything and 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 I'm not personally doing any of this work um, and so yeah it's it's been a really interesting journey yeah yeah I think it sounds very interesting because uh, from a startup to a mature organization as they say is the role evolves from doing everything to get the job done to probably exactly. looking at the big picture and seeing how it is implemented on an everyday basis so this is. This is so beautiful. But then where did this love for soil or love for agriculture or love for nature happen to you? Because, and you've made yeah. this into a, not only a career choice, but you seem to have made this into a life choice of dedicating yourself right. to the preservation, production, protection and growth of nature. Yeah, yeah. Um I think the the agriculture kind of lean happened a little by a little bit by circumstance. Um, mm-hmm. The original love is has been for nature and conservation. So growing up uh, in Dombivli, um there were people around me that had had a love for nature that I spent time with, whether just family friends or family themselves or or just people that I met in sort of our social circle. Um, but then I had an opportunity to actually engage with that love because um, because my family uh, comes from uh, the Kokon coast. So I would spend a lot of time in the village, uh, surrounded by nature, by the coconut groves, mango groves, the ocean. Um, part of my family is also from Sangli in, 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 uh, the, on the Deccan Plateau in Maharashtra. So 
uh, going there as well, a different kind of nature, the kind of vast open grasslands and, and, and uh, stony, rocky mountains and stuff like that. So I think, I think I was able to engage that love very early on. And that led um, to sort of a passion for working in conservation, uh, which, which then led to me doing my degree in environmental um, sciences, as you mentioned, at Cornell in the US. Um, and that eventually led to me working with, uh, working in sort of sustainable agriculture, trying to make sure that we are practicing agriculture that also helps conserve the nature around. And that's how I kind of sort, sort of came into, um, into agriculture and into farming. Um, so I think it's been, it's been a nice trajectory. It makes sense for me because I like, uh, I like, I like agriculture because it involves working with people. Uh, which I really enjoy, um, but it still has the environmental and biological side to actually growing the crop, which helps me indulge my sort of nerd uh, when it comes to when it comes to biology and, and ecology and conservation. So I think it's been a really really good balance. Um, and of course, um, you know, it is as you said, it's a life choice, but that's because agriculture and farming systems move on a scale that are you know not it's not a one-year thing right it's like a 10 20 year thing um even the green revolution in india did not happen overnight um when we talk about anything to do with farming we have to talk about a scale of many many years um because that's how long it takes for ecosystems or ecologies to grow and form um and for behavior change to happen and so that's kind of where i see that kind of longer commitment coming in. Um, so yeah, it's not something that I can say, oh, I, I'll work here for a year, then I'll move on. Uh, if you're really committed to seeing change, to see, seeing impact, it's a longer it's a longer term thing. You know, uh, specifically in India, uh, mm-hmm. when young kids, boys or girls, uh, you know, look for uh, work-life careers and education that supports it, uh, more often than not in the, uh, you know, middle income families in India, where we all come from, uh, the yeah. the goal or the pursuit has always been for, uh, you know, higher professional education, whether it is in engineering or medicine, law or finance or MBA, etc. cetera. Uh, you know, you chose to pursue a career in... Uh, environmental studies and sustenance, uh, you, know, yeah. you know, hats off to you to have not only made that choice, but walked that path over the years, but love to hear from you. How was it received by your parents when you actually broke the news to them? Because you are their only child and uh, yes. most Indian parents would want to see their kids uh, settle down in a good life in some of those professional studies that I spoke of. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think um, I was very lucky to have parents and family, friends, and a community really broadly um, that was supportive of different hobbies and different pursuits. Um, I think uh, love for nature or working in conservation was seen as sort of a positive thing. Um, of course, you can't turn hobbies or positive things into uh, into savings and a comfortable life or a good quality of life. But I think that's where um, that's where my parents came in, where they kind of suggested that if I wanted to study this, I should do it at a good place and I should aim to do something um, to the best extent possible. So if you're going to, you know, if you want to work in conservation, let's try and get you to a very good school, to a prestigious program so that after you study it, you can still um, find a good career, whether it's in India or whether it's elsewhere. And that's how I ended up going to Cornell, because at that time, finding a bachelor's program um, in India, a very well-recognized or prestigious program was a little bit difficult. Um, and as you said, it's not a normal career choice. So overall, the supply of such pro- supply and demand for such programs is low. Um, and that's how I ended up looking abroad, looking at the US um, for bachelor's programs, and I ended up finding a very good one. Um, but I think yeah, it, it really comes with sort of the open-mindedness and support of, of your family and of the people around you. Um, and I feel very lucky to have had, had that. So what 
how was life uh, both academic and uh, non-academic for you, uh, Yash, when you were probably young, yeah. 18, 19, something, uh, not only yeah. at Cornell University in New York, but uh, your master's yeah. with the IDS at University of Sussex in the UK. You know, what sort of yeah. life did young Yash live? Uh, <laughs> yeah, um, I mean... Yeah, not to fall into stereotypes, but it was amazing, right? So um, I think when we are younger, we are often more resilient in some ways. We are more open. And uh, I was 17 when I left India for the U.S., never having traveled abroad once for a week to Bangkok. Uh, I had never gone to the U.S. as an adult before then. And I think that um, it's a lot of change. It's a lot of adjustment. Um, but often at that age, we are quite open, we are flexible, we, we fall into things quite easily. Um, and I think Cornell was a really good, um, really good transition because the university is also very thoughtful about international students, about helping them find uh, good friend groups, about helping them sort of support them with resources because they know that you are new to the country, you're new to the system. Um, I think academically, it was it was just <clears throat> a mind broadening experience. Uh, you know, having grown up in the sort of Maharashtra State Board system, or even no matter where you go, I think the capacity for critical thinking and critical thought in Indian education, unfortunately, I feel it's quite low. It's not something that's uh, that's prioritized. So the priority is on get good marks and and move ahead, whether by you know, rote memorization or whatever, just just do it and, and get ahead. Whereas um, at Cornell, you're made to ask questions. You're made to answer difficult questions. Um, on, I still remember, if you know the movie Bambi, the Disney movie Bambi about the little uh, deer mm-hmm. um, that, that has its parents killed by a hunter, uh, in one of my environmental conservation classes, literally the first day, the first minute of the class, the professor walks in and says, I think that um, Bambi's, he made us watch the scene where Bambi's mother is shot. Um, and then he says, uh, I would argue that kill, killing Bambi's mother was not a bad thing. Discuss. And, you know, when you start with such a controversial perspective or viewpoint, you're really forced to ask tough questions. You're really forced to question a lot of assumptions that you hold. Um, and that really helps you form the capacity for critical thinking, for questioning yourself, for uh, reforming opinions, uh, forming opinions and reforming them, because often we don't even form opinions, right? Like we we read what's on WhatsApp, we, we are told something by people around us and we accept it as the truth. Uh, but, but this capacity for thinking for yourself literally is what it is. Um, I think that was probably the biggest gift that I got from Cornell. Of course, I learned a lot of content. But I think it's the way of thinking, the way of approaching things. I think that is, to me, uh, the most lasting and formative impact on me that I can see from from having been to Cornell. Um, Content-wise, I studied a lot. Uh, You know, we studied, we had lots of electives. So, of course, you have to study the core sciences, the core whatever. But then we, we also had to take many different classes. So I took a class in uh in filmmaking i took a class where i actually had to create like a little film and and give it some thought um i took a class in um, turkish history because why not you know uh, ottoman history so i think there was a lot of you you can really indulge some of your um other faculties and i think that also helps you um create sort of more rounded personality uh, which which I found to be really, really, yeah, re- really amazing. I'm really grateful for that. And then social life, I think, again, is kind of similar in that mind-broadening aspect where you meet so many different people. Um, you know, having grown up in Dobiuvi, I mean, wonderful place, but I I could, you know, like, you're surrounded by 80% of the people around your Marathi speaking. Um, we all belong to very similar backgrounds, very similar, everything is very similar. And to go from there to um, Cornell, where you're meeting people from literally all over the world, um, I think that was that was really cool. And and I ended up forming very deep friendships with people that I wouldn't have met in India. So you know, some of my closest friends are Pakistani, 
and that would never happen, obviously, in Mumbai. Um, or the yeah, just just uh, I think you you really you really um, broaden your experience, your horizons, and I find find that really valuable. You know, I was when you were narrating the story of uh, this Disney film Bambi and how your professor on the first day of the class walks in, shows you the little clip and has a little discussion or a debate or a dialogue in the class about whether Bambi, the deer's mother being shot is was right or wrong or good or bad. Uh, yeah. And then getting one to think differently reminded me of a beautiful incident that happened when my son was, I think, what, six or seven years old? And, uh, you know, the place that I was living those days in Pune was a large uh, uh, housing colony, housing society with about uh, 12 buildings uh, around a quite a beautiful and a nice garden, which was at the center of the housing complex. And uh, I was living on the second floor of a three-story building. And uh, early morning, I think it must be seven 637. Mm -hmm. I, probably it was a weekend. I'm not too sure. It was many years back. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I hear a set of dogs barking and barking quite mm -hmm. loud as if, you know, they are kind of uh, not playing game, but probably they are, uh, you know, at some kind of a fight with each other. So I mm -hmm. kind of woke up with that sound and I walk up to my balcony on the second floor and which overlooks the garden in front. And what I see is there are about four or five uh, dogs who are chasing mm -hmm. a young piglet who somehow got oh, no. uh, found its place there. And the dogs, each of them were, you know, one by one in turn biting and injuring the little piglet. Uh, and that game was going on for quite a while. And of course, one could easily figure out the end game being that the four of them would end up, you know, taking the piglet for food. And I couldn't yeah. see what was going in front of me. And, you know, the emotions overcame yeah. and I, I was kind of looking up if there is somebody walking around. And uh, I find yeah. I found somebody and I kind of, you know, uh, you know, called that person and says, I asked him, you know, if you can probably, you know, shoo the dogs away and somehow get the piglet saved. And while that was also happening, uh, there were tall trees in the garden uh, where suddenly out of nowhere, uh, you know, half a dozen or a dozen of crows came along. Mm. Obviously, they also felt that uh, they also have a part in the kill. You know, that's how the animal world works. So, so this, this uh, gentleman who was taking probably a morning walk, you know, felt just like me. He picked up a stone or two and threw at the dogs. And uh, after a while, the dogs went away and the piglet was saved and the piglet ran away. Of course, wow. it was very, very injured and, you know, blood oozing out. Yeah. And while this yeah. was happening, my six or seven year old son, hardly, you know, three foot something or four feet something, uh, standing right. next to me and, and, and watching all this. And uh, he then tugs me and says, uh, Baba, what did you do? Uh, you know, this was all yeah. in Marathi, Marathi. So I said, "Right, right." He said, "I saved the piglet." You know what that little fellow said? He said, <laughs> "Baba, won't the dogs go hungry today? Won't the crows? Mm -hmm. Won't mm -hmm. the crows? Crows go hungry today?" Yeah. So, yeah. so my entire idea of yeah. ethics and morality was kind of yeah. <laughs> turned upside down. So. You are absolutely right. This critical thinking, which is so very important, mm -hmm. where you know conformity and obedience is probably what uh, all of us, uh, especially in the culture that we have grown up with, uh, is cherished as a value, and uh, dissent uh, uh, is seen as something which is not appropriate. But somehow, in the world that we live today, and the critical thinking that you talked about, both uh, that you you know experienced in Cornell or the UK. Uh, it's so very important, isn't it, to question just about everything around you, not with yeah. the uh, idea of criticism, but to answer deeper questions. I'm sure that is getting played out yeah. in the work that you are doing in Africa. Yeah, it often is. And I mean, you know, um, just a simple example is 
I come from a conservation background and in, at least in many countries in Sub-Saharan Africa, the greatest driver of deforestation um, is actually agriculture um, because people don't have enough land. Uh, the, people are not food secure. They're, they don't have enough food. And um, one of the responses to that is let's create more land from the forest. Let's clear the land and let's plant it to have more food. Um, so, you know, I think there it's, it's a very gray area because on the one hand, you want, obviously you want to protect what little there is left of the forest and of, of sort of the biodiversity around you. But at the same time, um, you, have to, you have to ensure that people are food secure. Um, and I think that dealing with that needs sort of an acknowledgement that it's a gray area. It's, there's no black and white. And a lot of conservation organizations often make the mistake of thinking that it is black and white, but I don't think it is. And I think you have to deal with the nuance of it, uh, understanding that both sides have valid points and how do we now find a solution that kind of is a compromise that achieves both. Uh, because yeah, I mean, long-term food security for farmers is is the best way to uh, ensure that the forest is conserved because if it's if, if they're not food secure, they'll continue to clear the forest. So I think there are, there are very real questions like that in, in everyday life. So Yash, this uh, you know, paradox of conservation and development that I guess uh, all of us face at the moment, and you beautifully articulated in the context of sub-Saharan Africa, where you talked about uh, the greatest challenge uh, that that region of the world faces is deforestation. And yet you also have to clear some forests for uh, you know, creating agricultural land. So in the work that you're doing in, in conservation and supporting uh, agriculture through your one acre fund, you know, what sort of everyday reality you are facing uh, and what is the larger uh, you know, context of you know, rural Africa, especially Malawi, the country that you are living and working in? Yeah. Yeah, I think maybe I'll, I'll start with um, just a couple of minutes on Malawi. So I think it's, it's, it's a small country in southern, southeastern Africa uh, with quite a high population density and only one growing season. So um, the, the capacity for irrigation is quite low. So you only really have sort of the monsoon season of, of Malawi is when you can grow crops. Um, and so that makes it quite a challenging place to do agriculture to make sure that we have food, food security. Um, in, in all aspects, it's a wonderful place. It's a very warm country with warm people, uh, very easy to live in, I think, in many ways. Um, and often reminds me of, of living in, of, of like being in rural areas in India, right? So um, whenever I, I often meet farmers that, offer, that will remind me of my grandparents because they are older and they have you know similar mannerisms or or they're thinking the same way and I'll always say oh this is like my Aji this is like my grandmother um, so in that way I feel very at home um, but with that with with the rural aspect with the single growing season with often the age aspect of a lot of farmers or maybe the illiteracy aspect of many farmers there also come many challenges um, that that go back to that um, sort of development conservation. Uh, Paradox. So one of the big things that I took away from my time at my master's at the University of Sussex at IDS um, was starting to think more and more about behavior change and behavioral economics um, as a key aspect of, of, um, of, of development. Um, and I think the work that we do in agriculture in Malawi is a mixture of um, what what can science do for you? So what are the right technologies to help you grow more food? Um, and what can behavior change, behavioral economics, what can that do for you to drive, to, to make sure that the science, the technology, the trainings are actually adopted by, um, by the people, by the clientele that you're working with? Um, and I think bringing those two together is often quite hard. If we think about just simply, even in India, I mean, of course, you know, we've, we've gone through COVID years and the science told us, okay, you have to do ABC, uh, but driving that behavior change in people is very, very hard um, across such a large population, across all age groups and education groups. And I think that's, that's kind of 
the the crux of our work. So um, in Malawi, the, the pro what the program is trying to do is saying, um, if we adopt these good quality seeds, if we apply this kind of fertilizer at the right time, um, and if we make these technologies affordable, and if we are able to train on them well, farmers can grow more food in the amount of land that they have. Um, and eventually the idea would be that farmers are not just food secure, but they're able to grow more than just what they need to eat. Um, they can grow something extra for profit, to sell for profit. Um, and I think that's when, that's when we can start saying, okay, now we are getting to a point where farmers don't need to clear more land uh, they don't need to deforest more land to grow food and to become prosperous. They can grow more and be prosperous in the amount of space that they have because um, they have the right tools, the right knowledge, um, and, and they're adopting this behavior um, that's, that's letting them do more with what they have. Um, yeah, so I think, I think it's, 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 a challenging, it's a challenging task. Um, and we, we have setbacks. Um, you know, if you think about trying to get your parents or your grandparents to change something that they've done for years. We all know it's hard. <laughs> uh, we are all set in our ways. And I think, how do we approach that behavior change? How do we train? I think these are all kind of, um, you know, touchy-feely subjects, if I can say that. There's kind of soft skills that we have to adopt um, to make sure that that behavior change happens. You know, social enterprises like yours, the One Acre Fund, you know, which could also be termed uh, as an NGO, non-governmental organization, uh, right. do have to work within the boundaries and the rules and policies that the government lays down, isn't it? Yes. So in the work that you're doing uh, as a country director uh, for One Acre Fund in Malawi, what sort of interfaces that you have to engage with with the local government and what is the experience uh, that you have? And uh, how do you negotiate those relationships? Love to hear that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think right off the bat, what I would say is often, and we can, we can kind of question why this is, but often in Sub-Saharan Africa, um, it's, I feel like it's not as hard to be um, a foreign organization as compared to what I would think it would be in India. Um, and so, you know, we, we, we do have clear rules and systems in place um, in terms of how to engage and how to interface with all levels of government. Um, there is a roadmap essentially to do a lot of the things that you want to do, which is, which is really helpful. Um, so we have to, we have kind of the very local engagement. So let's say, in the Indian equivalent of a gram panchayat and a sarpanch, like we have to start from that level at the community level. We have to start getting their buy-in and their support to do what we are doing. Um, going all the way to the district level and then eventually to the to kind of the national government level. Um, so thankfully we have a very competent team that does all this work. And you know, like I said, there's a roadmap. So we know that okay, we have to get a sign-off from the serpent of this area, then we have to get a sign off from the district to do the work that we're doing. Then we have to be in touch with the national government on the content of the trainings or the products that we are providing. So there is, the, the, yeah, so the, we're kind of doing quite broad-based um, engagement. Um, and then there's the regulatory aspect, which is sometimes a little bit more difficult. So, you know, there might be quality testing, there might be taxation, there might be, you're allowed to train on this, but not on that. So I think that is, um, that is part of any any government and any context that you work in. So we also have to deal with that. Um, but generally, it's been uh, again sort of you know in Malawi, I think we've had we've been very lucky to have um, supportive government, supportive communities, and we've been able to do what we want to do with quite some success. Um, which yeah, something to be grateful for. And yes. and I think this work, I was just gonna say like this work again, like you know Malawi being sort of. So in some ways, a more open place than India, uh, where power is a little bit more accessible. Um, I think we've, you know, I've personally been able to meet the Minister for Agriculture or other cabinet level members. We even had the president visit one of our kind of de demonstration booths uh, at, at one of the agricultural fairs. So I think it's, it's really interesting to see that and to have that experience both as a person uh, but also as an organization to have that access to power. Um, 
so that we we can do a little bit of advocacy, we can build some more fluency with our programs and our work in in the corridors of power, so to speak. You know, uh, one of the things that which interests me as a subject, and I was I've been a, I'm a student of the subject for many years in various contexts of. Uh, the nature of uh, self-worth and dignity that we humans cherish and pursue. Uh, And uh, often in my observation and study, I have found that those at the bottom of the pyramid, if I can use that phrase, uh, seem to value this sense of self-worth and dignity very, very high. For example, Mm -hmm. uh, microfinance, is one of the great tools that is available for uh, ensuring development of uh, people and societies and communities at the bottom of the pyramid where they don't have access to, let's say, formal banking, finance, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, over the last uh, you know decade or two, this whole process has become very scientific and process oriented. I'm talking about in the Indian context. And uh, the little study that I have done uh, more as a personal interest has revealed that the level of repayment uh, that ha- is happens at that level is one of the highest, uh, unlike the mm-hmm. large corporates who uh, not yeah. only default, but they default big, uh, causing a big chaos in the economy. However, the small yeah. subsistence farmer uh, seems to be very mm-hmm. religiously, uh, you know, not only mm. taking the inputs from the support systems like yours, but even uh, ensuring payback. How is that behavior being experienced by you in Malawi? Love to hear that as well. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. I think what we have experienced is uh, smaller farmers, as you say, will often religiously repay. Our repayment rates have been in the high 90s for the last three, four years, 97%, 98%, even 99% one year. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think, as you rightly pointed out, it comes back to self-worth and dignity. So... Um, you know, we are dealing with farmers who who are fighting for something very fundamental, you know, like in the old, uh, maybe Indian way of roti, kapra and makan, uh, so food, food, clothing and shelter. I think we're talking about food, the very first thing that you need, the very basic thing that you need. And what we have seen is farmers rightly and rationally will put food security above everything else. Um, you know, I will often, we will often meet with farmers who honestly almost don't care what the price of something is, whether in terms of labor, whether in terms of money, if it ensures that they can have enough food throughout the year, if it ensures that they don't have to go out to buy food, which can be at any price, uh, which is very risky, or to ask for food from neighbors or family. Because, because their, obviously their dignity is tied to the idea that, I'm, that we can provide for our families, that we have enough food in the house, we are food secure. There's a spe- specific status and respect that comes with that, which is totally understandable. Um, and often we will, what we will see um, kind of, uh, this is something maybe in some ways similar in rural communities in India, but I feel like I've seen that more strongly in Sub-Saharan Africa, the sense of community uh, well-being is so strong that often our farmers uh, have big yields and they will share the bags of of food with their neighbors who maybe didn't have a good harvest because they weren't part of the program. Um, So we will often see that sort of thing. And I think it does, it comes back to that dignity question. Um, So yeah, I think, I think you're right. I think um, a lot of smaller farmers prioritize being food secure, having that dignity, having that self-worth, uh, that I, I have provided for the family, that we have enough to eat. We are not going to be starving. They, they, they really want that, to achieve that, which is totally rational. Um, and, and the way that they show their commitment to that is by repaying the loans so that they can come back and join the program again next year. Um, so yeah, it's a very, it's, I think for us, it's a very fundamental thing. And, and uh, we, we value that also by by giving respect and giving dignity to our clients, right? So they are not beneficiaries. They're not people who are getting quote unquote handouts, but they are clients who are paying us full costs for a service that we are providing, which means that just like, you know, just like any of the service industry in India uh, would provide you excellent service, that's the kind of service that we need to provide 
our farmers. If we are short on anything, we need to provide discounts, we need to say sorry. Uh, if they have complaints, we have a hotline that they can call. And this also helps build that sense of dignity that you're treated as a respected customer, not as not as a problem, not as a handout beneficiary, um, but but somebody who can call and complain and be heard. So I think that's very important to our ethos as one acre friend and also to development work, I think, in general. You know, then, you know, having said that, then, you know, it would be worth also to, to ask ourselves, I think, Yash, that the world of economics with uh, metrics such as uh, you know return of on capital employed or capital efficiency and so on and so forth uh, where everything is is around tangible measurable uh, uh, you know parameters what is it that this world of economics can learn from the community living where well-being of oneself and the other, which is so non-quantifiable and non-measurable, actually is is so very important. What is it that this world of organized economics can learn from the so-called not-so-organized communities? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that is the big question, right? How How do you put a price or a cost on things that are intangible. I think going back again to my time at IDS, this was one of the big aha moments that I had. I mean, I had experienced this in my work in the last few, in the in the few years before going to IDS. Um, but IDS has sort of a ethos that's focused on qualitative indicators uh, and not just quantitative indicators. It has a history as a what, what in India we would call maybe a more socialist or leftist leaning organization. But I think that that comes this very important thing about, um, about focusing not just on the quantitative numbers, but on the qualitative quality of life, on, uh, on dignity, on self-worth, on respect. And I think that is, that is critical to understanding how to drive forward development. Uh, it is critical to understanding why some big, you know, Yojanas and policies fail while some others do very well. Because um, as humans, we are pushed to do things um, not just through numbers, but but through kind of how we feel while doing them or while accessing specific services. So I think it is important to keep that in mind. I don't have a perfect answer to say <laughs> that, um, you know, it's, I mean, like I said, it is the big question. And I think, I think um, what I would say is, again, thinking about education and what we learn, um, maybe the starting point is having these conversations. Maybe the Absolutely. starting point is having having experiences like I had at Cornell or at IDS that make you question: um, Am I doing? Uh, is 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 this hard data the only way to do things? Or what can we learn from human interactions, from qualitative work, from focus groups, from sitting with farmers under the people tree and asking them uh, asking them about their life and about their sort of you know again kind of soft things like how they feel, what their aspirations are. I think all of this is quite important to understand um, the problems and then to start addressing them. No, I guess, uh, you know, this conversation, Yash, actually is leading me personally to a thought where how a world which is full of uh, discrimination, denial, and deprivation uh, is repurposed or... uh, re-looked at from the lens of conserving and enhancing uh, mm-hmm. human self-worth and dignity. And how do we build mm-hmm. uh, systems and societies and economies around this concept? And beyond the label of yeah. socialism or capitalism, you know, those isms, I guess, uh, you know, are, are traps, according to me. Uh, we just have right. to go beyond right. that and say, in the end... Yeah. Uh, you know, human dignity and human well-being uh, should be the be-all and end-all goal is what this conversation is leaving me with. But uh, as we end this conversation, would love to hear from you, Yash, that where do you go from here? Mm. Um, personally or... Personally. Or, or, personally. personally. Sure, yeah. Yeah, I think personally... Um, Something that I've said in the past is, and we talked about it a little bit, is um, 
agriculture or, or often work in development in agriculture is a lifestyle and it's a life choice. It's not necessarily just a career choice. I think life in rural Africa is very different from Mumbai or Pune or New York or London. It's not glamorous in the same way that many people, and, and nothing wrong with that. There's no judgment there. But uh, I guess for me personally, like there, the, the slower moving pace, the access to nature, the, the open, like kind of, yeah, the openness of the landscape. I think all of these are important aspects uh, for me and, and they're part of my choice for being here rather than being anywhere else. Um, so I think I continue to see myself working in sort of rural spaces, um, both geographically and, and from a work perspective. Um, I think that um, on the work front, um, thinking again about sort of a lifestyle choice or life commitment, I think the next big challenge that will come, or is already here, not will come, is uh, climate change and agriculture. So, you know, for years we've been fighting to become more food secure. And I think that fight is not done. It's not going to end uh, because the conditions are, around us are now changing. And I think, um, you know, it can be as small as, oh, it rained in February and March in the Kokan coast and our uh, hapus, our Alfonso mango harvest is, is small. So, you know, it can start from complaints on what I would, I mean, I know it's an essential in many of our minds, but let's call it a luxury on, on saying that some luxury food items are, are reducing and this, the same thing is predicted to happen to cocoa, for example, chocolate, yes. um, to, to thinking about the essential. So last year we had, um, in 2022, we had the heat wave in, in March when I was actually in Mumbai and it was 40 Celsius in March. Yes. Um, and what that did is it killed off our wheat yields. Um, and, and, you know, so coming back to the essentials of roti, uh, of, of chapati, of roti, of, of bread, um, that is also now in question, right? So we, I think we are seeing the spectrum of, um, of, of effects of climate change. And I think personally, that will be a very daunting, very interesting, very stimulating, maybe in the end, I hope not, but maybe in the end, a, a kind of, um, Pessimistic. I don't know. I, I don't know. We'll see how it goes. But I think there is a lot of work to be done there. And I think the the what what we are fighting for essentially is going back to this question of food security, of self worth, and of dignity. So you know, often in the field, I'll meet farmers who uh, it rained for three straight days, and they had worked for three months on their crop, and uh, their field just was waterlogged, was flooded away, and there's literally nothing in the field. You go to the field, and all you see is mud because the entire crop has, has gone away. So how do we recover from that? How do we mitigate that? Uh, what are the things that we can do to support such farmers? And in general, um, going from the individual to sort of the meta, what do we do to support our food systems? Because this is not going to go away. Uh, heat waves are not going to go away. Cyclones and floods, unseasonal rain is not going to go away. Um, so I think that is intellectually a stimulating challenge from a scientific perspective, a stimulating challenge, a very sobering thought, a humbling thought from a personal and human perspective. I think we have some big challenges ahead of us, but um, that's kind of where I see myself working is, is in a future that, that grapples with climate change and agriculture. Climate change, as you very rightly said, is such a big, big thing, which is not going to leave anything untouched. Uh, every aspect of uh, you know human life or life in general on this planet will get affected with the the larger changes that are happening but i guess i am optimistic i am positive about two things about the resilience of life in general uh, specifically mm -hmm. the species uh, called the human species will find itself to adapt but i'm actually more optimistic yash about the, about the uh, hope and uh, rather belief that for some of the largest questions that we are trying to find answers for, the answers will come mm -hmm. from small places uh, like Malawi, mm -hmm. uh, small places mm -hmm. or small communities that you work with. So I'm mm -hmm. so, so excited to, to have this conversation with you, Yash, to, to have met somebody who's actually working on the grassroots with the soil, with the farmers, 
where the human story all be began, you know, several, several yeah. uh, millions of years back. So what a wonderful yeah. conversation this has been, Yash. I think you are leaving me uh, with, a, with a lot of hope and optimism. And, uh, yeah. and pride in the kind of work that uh, young Indians like you are doing in a place called uh, Africa, uh, Malawi to be specific. So this has been a very enriching conversation for me. Love to hear from you. How has this been for yeah. you? No, same here. I mean, it's, I, I feel like we covered a lot of practical and intellectual ground, which is always exciting. Uh, always exciting to have a conversation of this level um, yeah, just just to, uh, again, coming out of it with hope and optimism that there are conversations like this happening. Uh, I'm grateful to you for inviting me to this to this amazing platform and also for the work that you've done to provide uh, airtime for, for all of these sorts of different career pathways, different life choices, um, and these different questions. I think... Uh, you know, this is part of, even if we didn't do it in school, I think this is part of our education of broadening our minds, broadening our horizons, asking questions, questioning assumptions. I think, um, yeah, and so this is very, very critical work that you're doing. And I'm just, I'm thankful and humbled that you included me in the list of amazing people that have come before me and that will come after me. So thank you for your time as well. You are equally amazing, Yash, and wish you Yash, which is success in everything yes. that you do uh, in your life. Uh, so take care of yourself, wish you good luck and uh, hope to see you soon. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for your time today, my dear listeners. This is your host, Milind Agnihotri signing off. Goodbye, take care and stay safe. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be considered as a piece of any professional advice. Views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of its guest. Creators of this podcast expressly disclaim any and all liability or responsibility for any direct or indirect consequential or other damages arising out of any individual's use of this podcast. For feedback and suggestions, please write to wingsindia75 at gmail.com. Thank you.